Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back. It is so good to be in the saddle this weekend getting to preach this message. I am fired up about this message. I think I might step on some toes this weekend, and I love preaching that way. Hey, uh, to our friends at Hohog down in East Wheeling, hi, and everybody watching online, either at a church at home group or if you're watching by yourself, so excited that you're with us. We're continuing in our series called The Story of Jesus, going through the book of Mark, and we're around week 40 in this series. It goes on and on and on. Now, we are in the last seven days of Jesus's life, and as we've already said, we're going to be here for a while. This is where uh, so much happens in those last seven days, and we're unpacking it. Uh, It started with Jesus riding a donkey into town. We called that Palm Sunday. They're yelling, Hosanna. He goes into the temple. He looks around, he leaves, everybody's like, what's going on? I thought he was coming in to, you know, kick the Romans out and take over, but he doesn't do that. And then the next day he comes back, he comes into town, and then rather than going to the, the Romans, uh, the Roman governor's mansion and taking over politically, which is what everybody wanted him to do, he goes to the temple and he starts throwing over tables and taking on the religious establishment, which nobody expected him to do, right? And so then they come after him with this whole series of questions. The first question was, well, the first question, which is, who are you? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right and the authority to do this? And then they come at him with a bunch of other questions, trying to trap him in his words, either to turn the people against him or to turn the Roman government against him. But they're trying to trap him with all these trick questions. And he keeps doing the Jesus thing. He keeps maneuvering around them and amazing them with his answers. And then last week, he had an honest question come at him. What's the most important commandment of all, and, and, um, and we wrestled with that last week. This week, Jesus turns and pivots a little bit and starts going after the religious leaders. And this, so this is some of my favorite. Uh, in Mark chapter 12, 35, that's where we're going to be today, Jesus says this, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Jesus is taking on the religious leaders here. He's saying, because they had this whole interpretation of, um, of who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. And he was going to be the son of David. Now, they didn't mean literally the son of David. Solomon was the son of David. He had some other sons, but he meant that it, they meant that he would be in the line of David or the family of David. Jesus comes a thousand years after David, but still kind of considered the son of David. But Jesus is like, look, you know, a father or a grandfather or a great, 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 great grandfather doesn't say to their great, 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 great grandson, my Lord. So clearly there's something bigger going on here. And the religious leaders, what Jesus is pointing out to this, it says large crowd of people. What he's pointing out to them is the religious leaders really don't know what they're looking for. And they're not going to like that very much. These guys know more about the Bible than anybody on the planet. 
They know all 613 Mosaic laws and all the thousands of other rules and regulations that govern all of that. They know they had at one point in their lives, they had memorized the whole Old Testament. Right, So they knew the scriptures better than anyone. And part of what they were searching the scriptures and studying the scriptures for was to understand the Messiah so they would know him when he comes. And here's Jesus is saying, look, he's standing right in front of you. Jesus is claimed to be the Messiah. He's standing right in front of you and you don't even see him. And yet you're the most biblically knowledgeable, the most religious people anywhere on the planet. And you're missing him. Jesus is saying, you're missing me. And, and, and really what he's saying is how can... How can they not, being who they are, how can they not know who the Messiah is when he's standing right in front of him? He's saying they don't understand. At one point, Jesus calls them blind guides because they don't understand what they think they understand. Well, he goes on, they would not have liked that, but they're really not going to like what he does next. In verse 38, it says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So Jesus just, I mean, he's going right at them right now. He is talking, speaking truth to power, and they really don't like this. I mean, this is all amping up to them arresting him and having him crucified, right? But he is speaking the truth. He says, this is what's true about these religious leaders, these teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace. Now, Contextually, this has really nothing to do with flowing robes. It did for them. It doesn't for us. This really has to do with them um, being in the position of respect, uh, of receiving accolades, of being in the spotlight and being loved and respected and at the top of the heap. You know, I heard an interview uh, several years ago with a guy who was elected to Congress and he went to Washington, D.C., and he was talking about how all the congressmen and women uh, will receive this pin that signifies they're a congressperson. So they, they put it on their lapel and they walk around with this pin. Uh, and it is, uh, they, they said, it, it's, it's unreal. You walk into a room and people almost like kneel before you, like they get out of your way, they make room on the elevator. If you walk in with this pin on, you are the deal on Capitol Hill. And what this, this person was conveying was that people, it goes to people's heads like that. They, they, it's almost becomes like in the Lord of the Rings with Gollum in the ring going, oh my precious, you know, it's like I got the pin. People worship me. They go out of their way for me. They get out of my way. I am the most important person in the room. And they, they become addicted to that. And the, the person who was doing the interview was saying that they, they don't wear the pin because they don't want that to happen to them. They, they purposely don't wear the pin. Uh, that's what we're talking about here, not flowing robes. That's, that's a cultural thing. That's what it would have meant for them. They love to hear people say, oh, you are so great. You do such great things. You're so smart. You know the Bible better than anybody else. Your sermons are the best. They love that. It can become kind of addictive if you're not careful. In verse 39, he says, and, and they love 
to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They love that position and that honor and that power. They've grown to love it, to need it. In verse 40, then he, he says, yet they devour widows' houses. What does he mean by that? What's, what's going on there? Well, what he means by that is that when a wealthy person would pass away, they would go to the widow and say, you know, your husband would have wanted all of this to come to the temple. And so you really ought to give it to the temple. And, and they would extort money out of helpless widows after their husbands had passed away to enrich themselves. And Jesus was like, that is heinous. And then they'll turn around and for a show, they'll make lengthy prayers. They'll, they'll wrap it all in religion. Oh, dear God, thou art so great, you know. And they'll go on and on with these flowery prayers. And people are like, wow, aren't they spiritual? And at the, But they're hypocrites. They're religious show-offs. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And they're in it to stroke their egos and to enrich themselves. Ego power, and love of money. If you read the context of of the, the Gospels, these are the things that the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, had given themselves to. And this is what Jesus says of them. These men will be punished most severely. So my question is this. What happened What happened to these guys? They did not go into this business with bad motives. I don't believe that. I think they went in because they wanted to help people, because they wanted to worship God, because they loved the Word of God. And somehow they became the enemies of God. And I think part of it is it doesn't sound like they had guardrails on their heart. They didn't think about ahead of time that ego could be a problem, that hunger for power could be a problem, that love of money could be a problem that would divert them and distract them and put them on the other side of the table from God. You know, all of that makes me tremble a little bit. I, I hope it makes you tremble a little bit too, because none of us start following Jesus with bad motives, right? We don't, we don't do it to be on the wrong side of God. We do it because we want to follow God. But if the most religious people in the whole world at that time and the people who knew the Bible better than anybody else can fall for this, so can we. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is ask and answer this question. How does following God go bad so that we don't do it, so that you don't do it, so that I don't do it? Five things. If you have a notebook or a, a travel journal, pull that out, and, uh, and I encourage you to write these down as we go. This is worth spending time meditating on this week. How does following God go bad? Well, first thing is when I use Scripture as a microscope instead of a mirror. When I use Scripture as a microscope instead of a mirror, What I mean by that is, well, I take other people and what's going on in their lives, and I put it under the microscope of Scripture, and I go, oh, they need to do this, and they need to do that, rather than looking in the mirror and going, what do I need to do in response to this? 
When we're sitting in a, in a church service or listening to a, a sermon podcast or whatever, and we go, wow, so-and-so needs to hear this. And I, I, I'm going to forward this on to, to three other people. Or if you're sitting next to your spouse and you're elbowing them, you really need to listen to this, this is for you. When we use Scripture as a microscope rather than a mirror, we are on a dangerous path because it will inflate our ego. It will divert us from the purpose of Scripture in the first place. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, uh, Paul is writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, who's leading the church, and this is what he says. He says, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's saying knowing the Bible is a good thing, all right? It's not knowing, knowing the Bible is not the problem here. It's a good thing. It makes us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And then in verse 16 and 17, he kind of gets into the purpose of Scripture. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is to equip you for every good work. The question is, what does this teach me about living right? What does this teach me about following God? See, the Bible wasn't written just to fill your head with a bunch of knowledge and information. It was written to change your life and the way you live. Paul captures this in Romans 12 too as well. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, live differently, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we as we feast on Scripture, as we learn Scripture, it is not just so we know more than everybody else and we have some interesting things to share at a cocktail party. It's so that our lives will be transformed and we must constantly be asking the question, what is God saying to me? How do I need to change because of what I've read, because of what God says? James captures this in James chapter 1 and verse 22. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed and what they do. We are to come to the mirror of Scripture and not just look and learn and walk away, but we are to ask, what am I supposed to do with this? Where is my life out of line with what God's Word? And what do I need to do to bring it back in line with God's Word and His ways? But when Scripture becomes a microscope, I become a hypocrite. When I start looking around at what everybody else needs to do because of what I read in Scripture, I will become a hypocrite. Jesus, Jesus put it this way. He said, quit trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye and deal with the log in your own eye. Second way Scripture and following God can go bad, and it's when we cherry pick 
the scriptures for what we like. It's when we cherry pick the scriptures for what we like. The Jewish leaders wanted a military Messiah, and so as they read the Scriptures, they only saw the Scriptures that referred to the military Messiah. They did not see the, they did not see the redemptive plan for the whole world because that's not what they were looking for. They picked and they chose which ones they were going to go with because it fit their agenda and it fit their plan. You know, back in the... Back in the uh, early part of our our nation, Thomas Jefferson uh, took a Bible, or several Bibles, I believe, and, and and a razor blade, and he cut out all the passages and all the verses that he liked, and he pasted them all together in one Bible. It's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible, and he left everything that he didn't like out. Now, as much as I I respect a lot about Thomas Jefferson, you don't get to do that. Like, we don't get to pick and choose God's the parts of God's Word that we like and leave the rest behind. That's not how it works. He's God. He put everything in there for a purpose and a reason. And when we come across things that don't agree with us, or we come across things that challenge us, or we come across things that we don't like, we are to allow it to form and shape us. We are to wrestle with it, not eliminate it. We can't cherry pick the scriptures for what we like. In Matthew 23, in verse 23, Jesus says to the religious leaders, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. He says, you guys, the, 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 the teachers of the law really liked this, this teaching that we find in the Scripture about tithing. It's the first fruits principle. We bring the first 10% of what God blesses us with, and we give it back to Him. And God set this up, and His people followed that. Well, the religious leaders and teachers of the law really liked it, maybe because that's how they got paid. I don't know. But they would, they would tithe down to, like, they go out in their garden and clip, you know, here's a little bit of dill, some fennel seed, or, or whatever else. Like, and that wasn't even really what the scripture was about, but they, like, followed that to a T. They were, they were, they lost the spirit of what God was, was doing in the first place. But Jesus says, look, no, it's good that you do that. It's good that you tithe, but you, you're ne- completely neglecting like the point, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. You can't just pick this and leave this behind. We can't cherry pick the scriptures. See, what we do is we make God in our image and we skip the parts we don't like. Let me say that again. We make God in our image and skip the parts we don't like. And we say things like, well, I don't think a God of love would define that as sin because I like that (laughs) or because somebody I know likes that. And and God is a God of love and mercy. And so I, I, I don't think he would do, I'm good with it. So God is good with it. Guys, we don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. He's God. And, and in this day and age, we will always be able to find people who will encourage us to cherry pick. You will always be able to find somebody online with a different opinion, and it might not be founded on anything orthodox or or real, but they have an opinion. You can find the opinion out there somewhere, right? Um, Let me encourage you, do not go to Google for theology. 
Do not go to years ago. I had a friend who said, you know, anytime I have a theological question, I just I just type it into Google and I'll get an I'll get my answer, and I, I believe that comes from God. And I was like, are you aware that the algorithm for Google is designed by atheistic communists who don't really love God? I don't know that that's a real. I don't know that that's how you want to go. In fact, I'm sure it's not how you want to go. But when we go out on the internet and we're like, well, I, I don't like this part. We start searching for affirmation for what we want rather than truth. And no matter what it is you want, you will be able to find affirmation for it because there's all kinds of crazy people out there. Go for truth. 2 Timothy 4, again, Paul writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, he says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Well, I don't like what that pastor said, so I want to find another one online I can listen to who will say what I want to say. That's the, that's the era we live in, guys. And we look to make God in our own image, guys, but the goal of Scripture, the goal of following Jesus, the goal of living in God's family is not for God to become more like you, but for you to become more like Him. And His Word is what, what leads us in that direction. We don't get to cherry pick. We don't get to pick and choose. Third thing is this, when we focus on speculation instead of obedience. You know, when we Look at Scripture as a mirror and we ask, how am I doing? That's a good thing. When we look at it as a microscope and go, well, how are other people doing? That's a bad thing. But sometimes people like to use it to speculate about what's, what's going to happen or the way things are in the universe. And, and, and oftentimes we'll try to answer unanswerable questions. A few weeks ago, Chris Deuce shared a question that he, he's heard before, like, Pastor, you know, is, can God make a rock that's so big he can't lift it? You know, like, I, I don't know. I mean, you're not going to answer that. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Or, or who is the Antichrist, right? Or, or is this the end of the end times? You know, I mean, can, can we just all agree that the world's crazy right now? And when the world gets crazy, everybody wants to know, is Jesus coming back now? Is this it? Is this the end? You know, can we study Revelations and find out if Jesus is coming back now? You can study Revelations, but you're not going to find out if Jesus is coming back now because we don't know. We don't know, but we want to, and people get all consumed about it. And I'm telling you, when we get focused on speculation and we get focused on things that we don't have an answer to or that we are not supposed to have an answer to and we get distracted by that, then we don't have to focus on what a jerk we are. We don't have to focus on how, you know, how I'm treating my wife or my kids or my parents or my coworkers. I don't have to focus on whether my life is submitted to Jesus in the area of finances or in the area of work or in the area of, of marriage or whatever else. I, don't have, I can stay distracted all day long in speculations that really don't matter and that we really don't have an answer to. In 1 Timothy, doing a lot of Timothy today, chapter 1. Paul writes this, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus 
so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. They were, you know, the, the, the genealogies and, and the speculations, what they were, what he's referring to is, you know, people were like, well, there's this many generations from this to this, and this many generations from this to this in that age, so the next age is going to last this long, so Jesus is going to come back here. And he's like, that's speculation, stop that. You know, and, 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 and then we're going to speculate that the world is exactly 7,000 years old because there's been this many generations and that many generations, not taking into account that David was the son or Jesus was the son of David and there was a 1,000 years in between them. And we're just speculating and trying to figure out. And there's a whole industry, guys, in the Christian world today, people writing books saying, well, this is it. And there's this pattern or that pattern or this, that is just speculation. And it. And, and we can spend all our time consumed with that. And I can tell you, every time somebody predicts when Jesus is coming back, they're wrong. They have been. I mean, all my life, I've, how many times over the last 50 years has somebody, and they've been wrong. In 2012, we did a, a series called It's the End of the World and we know, as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. And the last message was after the date that somebody had set that God was coming back and the kingdom of God was going to be established and all that. And I had pre-written the message, and it was, we're still here, now what? Because I knew they were going to be wrong. Here's what we know. Jesus is coming back, but it's all speculation as to when. I remember when I was a little kid, I, um, seven years old, I had just watched the very first Star Wars movie on the big screen at the Victoria Theater downtown Wheeling. And my mom took me to a Bible study through the book of Revelations. And uh, I was like seven, I was just sat in the back. And I have this clear recollection of it. I think it was at the McClure House Hotel in downtown Wheeling. And we didn't know who was leading the Bible study. It was interesting. But they went through and they named, you know, this person's the Antichrist and that person is this and, and the Pope is this and, and, and the day is this and, and all of that. And in the end, they revealed that it was a group of Seventh-day Adventists and they had this whole plan. And none of that came to be and none of it came, came to pass. And it was speculation. Everybody was hanging on the edge of their seat. Everybody was interested. Paul says such things promote controversial speculations rather than what? Rather than advancing God's work. It's a distraction. Now, am I saying we shouldn't read the book of Revelation or study it? No. But when people do that, all they want to know is when's Jesus coming back and who's the Antichrist? We don't know. Answering the unanswerable, guys, is not deep Bible study. It's deep something, and it kind of smells, and you're standing in it, but it's not deep Bible study. If something is important in the Bible, it is clear in the Bible. God did not send his only son to take what Jesus took to take the beating, to take the shame, to take the abuse, to take the crucifixion, to set up a scavenger hunt for us, for a few select smart people to be able to figure out the puzzle of what's really going on. If it's important in the Bible, it's clear. 
in the Bible. A loving father doesn't do that. We are not living in American treasure. As much as I love that movie, we're not. Jesus, when he was asked by his disciples in Acts chapter 1, if this was the time that the kingdom was going to be established, this was the time that he was going to, going to come and, and, and everything that they were hoping for was going to happen, he goes, I have no idea. He said, the angels don't even know. Only the Father knows, and he's not talking about it right now. He said, so here's what I want you to do. I, instead of focusing on that, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, then I want you to go around the world and help people find and follow me. And over and over again through his teachings, Jesus said, I want you to be found faithful. I want you to be found. You're not going to know when I'm coming back. It'll be in the twinkling of an eye. I want you to know, or I want you to be found doing what I've given you to do. In the meantime, don't get distracted. Jesus said we need to have faith like children, not the intellect and the problem-solving abilities of Einstein. And when we go down that road too far, we end up missing the simple beauty of the gospel, of Jesus saving sinners, of broken people being healed, and our part to play in all of that. Focus on obedience. In Proverbs 3, verse 5, I love this verse. It has so many applications. One of my favorites. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In other words, you're not going to be able to figure everything out this side of heaven, guys. You're not. But in all your ways, submit to Him. Surrender to Him. His ways are better. His, his ways are higher. Follow His ways, and He will make your path straight. He'll get you where you need to go. We're not on a scavenger hunt trying to figure out What's going on? Jesus has made clear, the Father has made clear in His Word what needs to be clear. Fourth way, religion goes bad, is when our biblical knowledge leads to pride. Bad religion is when my understanding of Scripture leads to arrogance instead of love. Period. 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says, look, you can speak in tongues and have all kinds of miraculous power. You can fathom the mysteries of Scripture. You can give everything you have to the poor, but if you don't have love, you've missed the point completely. As we study God's Word, our love for people and our love for God should grow. That was not happening with the, with the uh, teachers of the law. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, there's a situation going on in Corinth. Corinth was a pagan city. They had all these temples pagan temples where people would take animals and sacrifice them to the idols in the temples. And then they would take the meat and they would take it to the market and they would sell it in the market. And some of the Christians were buying the meat in the market and eating it just like you and I would go to Michaelis or Kroger and buy meat and eat it. They just, you know, some of it would have come from these, these um, temples. Well, some of the Christians were like, whatever, you know, I mean, the idol's an idol. It's a piece of wood, no big deal. Others were like all freaked out. No, we can't eat, you know. And, and, and it had turned into this battle between them. And so, so Paul steps in and he says, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. You have knowledge, you have knowledge, all right? But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. 
Guys, this isn't, what Paul is saying is like, guys, this isn't exactly clear in the Bible, like what you're supposed to do here. So let's default to love in this situation. And, and he affirms, he affirms that the, you know, it's idols are just little gods and little lords and aren't really that, you know. But if somebody is convicted about it, act in love towards them. Don't cause them to stumble. Don't do it in front of them. But at the same time, don't stand over here and judge these people who have a freedom to eat that meat. Because your knowledge, well, you can get all, it can divide us and we can start throwing rocks instead of hugs. Paul's like, let's go with the hugs. I've seen this happen over the issue of Halloween. You know, when I was growing up, my folks uh, one, one year went to some seminar they did at church about Halloween and how it was Satan's holiday and it had all these ties in the occult and these other things. And, and actually, a lot of that stuff is really true. I mean, it's right along the, it's right along the, the lines of the, the meat sacrifice to idols thing. Um, and so I remember as a kid, we would go for a lot of years, we would go to the mall and we would be the only ones there and we would walk around the mall and the lights were all off at the house and that, that was it. And, and, um, and, uh, and then I was, it's like other people who are Christians are participating in Halloween. And for them, it's like, I'm not celebrating a satanic holiday. I'm dressing my kids up in candy so they can get me Reese cops. Come on, let's get down to what's real here. You know, and, and that's not their intent. They're not worshiping anything. And, and, and so, but what could, what happens is you've got these Christians judging these Christians and these Christians judging these Christians. And Paul's like, as you read scripture, as you gain knowledge, it should lead to love and acceptance on questionable issues. And the Bible isn't quite clear on meat sacrifice to idols and or Halloween. Now, I personally think Halloween's evil because of all the sugar it puts into kits, but that's a different story altogether. If you really understand the Bible, you will be growing in love, not judgment. Never use Scripture as a club. Fifth thing, fifth way, religion goes bad is when we have power, money, or ego, we are at risk of falling in love with it. Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for. But they had a good thing going. The religious leaders, the teachers of the law, they had a seat at the table of power in a way that most people in the rest of the Roman Empire didn't have. They were the only nation, as far as I know, in the whole of the Roman Empire, which was most of the known world at that point, who were allowed to worship their own God. The, the religious leaders had negotiated this peace with, with this people, and they were part of the power structure. They got to influence the culture. They had power, and they wanted to protect their power. They had money and they wanted to protect their wealth. They had prestige and they wanted to protect their position. And the people had a love-hate relationship with them. They knew they were a corrupt ruling class. And at the same time, they were the ones who sat in the position that allowed them to worship their God. And they kept the temple worship going and all that. But they could see the hypocrisy that Jesus verbalized. Nobody would verbalize it up to Jesus. You know, these men posed as religious and they posed as patriots, but they were in it for position and they were in it for power and there were all kinds of backroom deals going down with the Romans and they were enriching themselves off the backs of their people as we've talked about in previous weeks. 
And all of this, guys, blinds them to the Messiah standing in their midst, the one they had been waiting for, the one they had memorized the Scriptures so that they could find Him. And they can't even see Him. And at the end, in the end, they're willing to crucify Him to preserve what they have. And my question for you today is this. How about you? What are you holding on to in your life that you would be willing to crucify Jesus to protect? Maybe it's control, control of your stuff. Maybe it's an area of morality or immorality in your life and you just kind of really like it. Maybe it's your image and your ego. Maybe it's your love of money or your love of power. What is it? that would blind you to Jesus or make you willing to crucify him in the end to protect it. Because your religion can go bad that way. Jesus said, you can't worship two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. This is what he was talking about. And so my question for you today, this is personal application for every one of us listening to this message is what do you need to submit to God? What's blinding you? Call it out and bring it to Him and surrender it to God because you don't want to miss Him. He is the best thing in this world and the next. I have one final observation. It's kind of related, but kind of unrelated. And it's this, as I watch our world today and I watch our political leaders, I see a lot of the same trends. I see people getting rich off the backs of the people they're supposed to represent. I see people go to Washington, D.C. with nothing and leave with hundreds of millions of dollars while making $150,000 a year. And they love their power and they love their position and they love their pin. And they do it while posing as patriots. I had a conversation last week with a political leader here in, the, uh, in our community, and, and they were telling me, they said, you know, the, the hard part is that I can't, we can't find any, any good people who want to run for these offices. Nobody wants to go through the abuse. It's an ugly process, and they will, they'll try to destroy you if you, you come up against their power and and nobody wants to go through all that. Good people don't want to go through all that. And my observation to them was, yeah, anybody who is not hungry for power isn't going to put them and their families through that. Why would they? they don't, I mean, it's only people who are hungry for power that would be willing to do that. And those are the last people we want to rule us. And so very few people will stick their necks out for what's right these days. We don't want to get canceled. We don't want to get exposed. We don't want to get beat up. We don't want to risk losing things. Our love of position and power causes us to be cautious, doesn't it? And just, this is totally free. But if our country ever needed good people to lead, it's right now. If our country ever needed people who were committed not to worshiping their egos and not worshiping their money and not worshiping 
their pride and their position, it's right now. We need people who aren't in it for power or prestige or wealth, but who are there to protect our freedoms and to stand for what is right. People who are surrendered to God and who have decided ahead of time, I'm not going to worship those things. Guys, and short of that, short of the moral grounding and morals of following Jesus, I think, I think the human heart is destined to end up like the religious leaders. We need people like you, but there are very few willing to stick their necks out for what is right. Maybe, just maybe, God is calling some of us to choose to put on those guardrails to guard our hearts against those traps and to step into the ring, to risk it all, to get beat up because I think we're going to get beat up along the way, and to surrender our power, our prestige, our wealth, our comfort for the greater good of what God wants to do in our world. That part's free. I hope you'll spend some time thinking about it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have a plan for people. God, thank you that you have a heart of love for all of us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are centered in you. God, that you would keep our hearts true to the spirit of your, your word, and your spirit would keep us true to you. Protect our hearts and help us to embrace you when you're standing in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.